Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore topics of interest for leaders and professionals in education and a variety of other disciplines, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. Uh, I am honored to have tonight's guest uh, because uh, he's not only a, a brilliant author and expert in education, um, is that he's joining us from Liverpool tonight. And, and so I'm just uh, delighted that he would be uh, willing to come and be with us, uh, even though it's quite late in the evening there. And I promised him that uh, we would keep the show at about 30 minutes, and I won't ask a whole lot of questions. But um, uh, tonight's author um, and, and guest uh, is a, a prolific writer, and um, he's here to discuss his book, The Illusion of School, The Reason Why Children Fail, plus How, I, how to Improve Grades, uh, Great Tips for Parents and Teachers. He's a global expert in education and, and is very respected for his scientific work and intelligence. So we're going to talk first about his book, The Illusion of School, but then he has a couple other books that I'm, I'm really hopeful that we'll get in because I'm anxious to hear more about um, his other books. Um, but he's over 35 years of experience. He has a number of books that he's written um, and so just so much. And so I'd like to welcome uh, Roy Anderson. Welcome, Roy. <laughs> Brian, thank you so much and welcome. Thank you. Thank you. And, and so, Roy, um, I, I, you, you sent me um, a, a chapter of your book, and I, uh, I'm just delighted. I, I've had a chance to uh, read it, and uh, it's interesting because I have, I've written a couple of, of pieces about uh, the role of education. One I wrote years and years ago um, after South Africa had had transformed into a different uh, uh, democracy, if you will, um, that was entitled The Role of Education in Transforming South African Societies. And so this was really um, something that, that resonated with me. And there are a lot of things that you talk about here just in the first, uh, first, first chapter. And so I want to start with um, because I think it's it's a really loaded question uh, about what is the purpose of education, and so there and and so I'd love for you to start there. Um, love to hear uh, about that and and your perspective on what you think it should be, and 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 I would love to hear if you if the, kind of the gap from what you think it should be and where what it actually is at the moment. So, um, again, welcome, and I would love to hear you expand a little bit on the purpose of education. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. You know, we, we think that really school is teaching children how to learn, and we send our kids to school and we give them to the teacher, and we pray that the children will get good marks and get a good life. And we, we believe this is how the system works, but it's not actually true. The system, the school system, primarily had one purpose, and that was to take 
immature minds who were very free and running around to, to be able to sit down, calm down, and learn to obey. So that the primary purpose of school was to teach children to conform to rules of behavior. Mm-hmm. So that as citizens, they will conform to the rules of their society and be reliable workers. As our technology evolved, so we began to teach them more skills about how to be more competent workers for the technology we predicted that would come. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Basic purpose of, of education. The the really way it works, it works in a nineteenth century design that we still have not escaped from, that has the prime purpose of deciding which students will go to university and which will not. So school does not teach children how to reason and it doesn't teach them how to think. Forget ideas about critical thinking, that produces no effect within the mind of the student. But those who gain the higher grades, um, as we'll explain why, they demonstrate self-responsibility. And by these higher grades, they are then elected into the university, where at the university they are taught skills of how to reason and how to think, because these are the people who will be the managers in society, managers in, in industry, and they are given this higher skill in reasoning. This 19th century design never wanted everybody to be equal. And so those who don't go to university, those who don't perform well enough in school, get the lower grades, they go into the job or they go to college to prepare them for the job. So these citizen workers will be less able to think and therefore more compliant to the guidance given by the managers of society. And this primarily is the purpose of school. It is to put in kids at one end and decide who will be the the uh-huh. managers in society and prepare them for that by giving them higher re- reasoning skills and those who will not be. Mm-hmm. And what I'm well, saying is that this, we didn't really, you know, when the 1960s came and 70s, we began to realize that we needed to be more equal in education. But we, we were blinded by this um, economy by which education worked, that it, it, it had this purpose of who will go to university and who will not be. Um, And uh, what I'm really coming to to say is that as artificial intelligence takes over our society, our our global civilization, and it will do more and more, it's going to change the way that we live and the way that we work, and therefore what society wants from the citizen. The citizen of the future, our children and certainly their children, will have to have a higher reasoning skill. They'll have to be more compassionate in, in their behavior because there will be a great deal more, uh, there will be more unemployment as artificial intelligence takes over. Forget the idea that we'll train for new jobs. Once you understand what nanotechnology is capable of, there will be very less jobs available, more unemployed people, and therefore greater social problems, therefore greater sort of disturbance within the society and society must maintain a stability which it can only do by um, by greater surveillance and control of the citizen so if the citizen can't behave then they must be conditioned to behave and mm-hmm. this is the danger that we're producing a 19th century model citizen in the 21st century what mm-hmm. we need to do is teach children how to think and how to school you know Binet uh, Alfred Binet who was supposed to have created the first intelligence test. He never, he didn't do that, but it was actually Goddard and uh, Tierman who did that in America. But Binet said that children should first be taught 
the how to learn and how to think before they're taught the other subjects. But because, as we've already understood, political school was never designed to create all children to learn to think better. It only wanted a variation of ability yes. coming out to the variation of job skills. Yes. No, absolutely. And I mean, I, you you have dropped a lot of really important um, uh, points here uh, that I don't want to lose. And I mean, particularly the one about that education uh, should be about teaching children to reason and think. And, and I, you know, I, I used to think that there was not a group of people that sat back and and decided that's not in our interest um, to do that. Now, not so much, <laughs> um, but it it just seems so uh, counterproductive that that we spend a great deal of time. And I, I know you are very familiar with the U.S. education system. Uh, that and and there are others all over the globe that um, that are similar. You know, there are different structures, but but this whole idea where you said that essentially what happened a hundred years ago or more, where t- children were being taught to conform to rules of behavior, and and I would add and would love to hear your take on this that. A particular um, kind of behavior and stratifying the the different groups, and so some groups are expected to do things, and that might be kind of a top ten percent, and then then stratified down uh, through society of people who have roles, and and that that's what's being replicated. It's the stratification. Um, and so I'd love to hear your take on that. Um, yeah, I, I, I um, you know, as we, as you said, you know, before the 1960s, the teachers were very disciplined in teaching the children certain behavioral models. But when the 60s and 70s came, and certainly now, they were restricted in how they can teach the children to behave because the parents will object because they have a different cultural background. And mm-hmm. so we are not giving children today a standard way of general behavior. And so for they're coming out, well, you know very well um, how violent children can be now in school. Yeah. I mean, you know, there was a case of an English teacher who was stabbed to death in a class. And two weeks later, Two girls were were stopped by the police with knives ready to kill a teacher. A year later, a teacher was stabbed in the stomach because he asked a kid to put away his his game boy. Um, The violence is now uh, manifesting. We've got to find some way to get the children to be better citizens for the future. Mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely. Let's let's move on to really... um, really how the children learn and really um, how we can help them to learn better because we've only got another 20 minutes. Yes, yes. And so your thoughts uh, around, so the answer to this. So if we, if so let's just suppose that we have the political will to do this. What is it that we should be doing uh, to help them to help them learn. 
Well, first of all, let's understand how the child learns or how the student of yes. any age learns. We, you know, we have two two students in front of us, one who performs very, very good and the other one much less. And we tend to think that the much less has a kind of a limited ability. But really, it's understanding that the mind drives the brain. The, the way that the sensitivity of the mind to interrogate information, that's the sensitivity that brings the neurons and the, neuros, the neurotransmitters into play to create the, the, the effect of the brain to operate. But the mind itself operates on two factors. Number one, am I safe? And number two, what is the most interesting thing for me? We all do this. It's, it's part of our coding. So the problem for the student in school is, number one, am I safe? Am I safe at home? Am I safe with my peers in the classroom? And do I feel safe with the teacher? And if I don't feel safe in any of those three regions or, or two of them, then I'm trying to deal with that factor to, to be safe so that I can concentrate on, on, on learning. And many of the problems that children have or students have is that their mind is drifting with this factor of not being safe. The second factor is that uh, what is the most interesting thing for me, if the teacher isn't able to make the lesson fun and, uh, and capture the mind and interests of the students and provide the information that each student is able to understand relative to what they understand previously, then that's not the most interesting thing for them. What then they think about is the game to play, the boy or the girl they like, and the thoughts, movies they've seen. And once they do that, their mind moves away from the learning process. This brings us on to understand what learning is really about. Learning in school is built upon two languages. These are mathematics and the language used for the normal communication of the school, be it mm -hmm. English, German, American, Chinese, Arabic, whatever it happens to be. And these languages work on rules, a steady progression of rules. Now, if the child is able from, from the very beginning is able to listen to the rule, to understand it, and to practice it, to become proficient. Then they know how to play the game. When they're giving a learning task, they can negotiate through the learning task with a sense of success. They're happy. Mm -hmm. This is fun. I can do it. They then want to expand this, so they then think, what can I do with this skill in other areas? So they develop curiosity and critical thinking. By this awareness of the success, they become sensitive in what they're examining. This sensitivity by how they examine information is then defines how information is related to what they've stored in the memory, so they create good memory strategies. They identify very clearly what the information is, the, 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 the characters and the word, the, the sentence, the meaning, whatever it is. They, understand, they relate that very smartly to, uh, to past experiences. Then they can realize a meaning to this. Very, and we think, oh, these, these, this kid's brilliant, he's clever. But if, for many reasons, the, the, the child is distracted from learning a rule, then they don't know how to think. So, they, so when they're given a learning task, they try to move through it. They come to something which they don't have the rule to do, so then they become confused and frightened, nervous, what to do, because they're aware of other people, very competitive atmosphere. They may ask the teacher for help, but very seldom are they able to force the teacher to give an adequate explanation. They more or less say, yes, I understand when they don't. But when they're noticing that other students about them are doing what they can't do because they've learned the rule, they think, oh, they are better than me. I'm not that good. 
and therefore a sense of inferiority. And this is the biggest problem that students have in education. I can't do this. And once they think like that, well, then they, they don't have the confidence to, to make the steps to, to learn mm-hmm. and to fall and to experience. And the many students that I've had who have a problem in whatever it happens to be is not because they don't understand is that because they didn't, they weren't aware of the previous rule that enabled them to think how to do that. So if you have, if you're teaching anybody, the first thing to do is like Freud said, psychology, physiology, is to get them calm, relaxed, give them confidence, give them a sense of security, make a friend with them, whatever. And once you've got that element of trust with them, then find out what they don't know and then correct that misunderstanding and rebuild the rule up. And you'll find that a very poor performer can become brilliant in the class once they have mm-hmm. this belief. You know, I remember when I was, uh, when I, I, I failed in school when I was a kid. I, I was always below average in a class of mathematics. I was given a 28 out of 30. I really didn't understand what was happening. In <laughs> fact, in my uh, finally, final years, they said to me, well, you're not clever enough to do mathematics. You must do arithmetic for your final uh-huh. examination. And I, I failed that uh-huh. at a very low level. And when I was, so I, I failed all my qualifications, all my examinations. I got zero when I was 17. I got wow. a job in a factory, but I decided that I didn't want to do that. And I wanted to uh-huh. find it in my life. So I hitchhiked around Europe. And then I thought, well, I want to see the world. I want to discover other people and other cultures. So I can only do that in the Navy. So I managed to get into, well, actually what happened was that I went to um, uh, an entrance examination to get into college and I failed it. And I thought, this is no good. I've got, to, I've got to pass this. So I went into a bookshop and I bought a book, How to Learn Mathematics and How to Learn English. And I devoted myself to understand these two books. I retook the examination three months later. I came first in mathematics and, and enough, enough in English to get into this college. And then, I, for me, I realized that if I didn't pass this, I would go back to the factory. So I worked very hard. I learned, I, I, I kept everything alive in my mind. You know, one of the biggest problems teachers have got is that they move through a lesson from lesson two to lesson three, four, five, six, seven, but they don't keep previous lessons alive in the mind of the students. So that generally the students get, forget what they've done. And therefore they, they have this lack of strength about what, what the subject is. But I kept going over everything, everything, everything. And at the end of the first year, I was the top student in the college. And after I left, after three years, I had first-class distinctions in 14 examinations. These were pre-university. They were very, very high um, uh, examinations, and I passed them almost perfectly. And then I thought to myself at the age of 24, why could I be so clever or so smart, and yet at 17 be so stupid? And then in my 30s, my late 30s, I decided that I, I really wanted to dedicate my life to help children in school. I never wanted one child to fail as I had done. And so what I did was I I escaped from the world. I, I, I went to a house in, in Denmark with my, with my children. And for 10 years, I taught myself genetic, neurology, all the political, social science, every aspect of education. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what I was doing. I... I I would contact senior professors and leading in the field, and they were very, very kind to give me guidance, which took me what time to understand. But then, once I understood really what was happening, 
And so the danger of continuing the mechanism of education, of producing these essentially two tiers of the population for a, for a world that will only require higher level or it will take over more of the freedom that we've got because, because it must maintain a sense of stability, mm-hmm. then I realize that we've got to change this and we've got to find ways of teaching the children how to, well, teaching the teachers how to better control the learning ability of their children by teaching them sensitivity. And this, what I realized is, is that then it comes back to this aspect of what the teacher thinks the student is capable of. Now, of course, a teacher has got many kids or many students in one lesson which they've got to move through. They don't have time to help each, each individual um, as, they, as they would wish to do so. So they generally accept the performance that each student makes. They make a few corrections, they try to help them, but basically the student moves from lesson to lesson, year to year, based on the, on the, on the rules that they didn't understand. And so we have this variation of ability at the end. And what we've got to do is to help teachers to understand how to, how to entertain the minds of the students, to pull them into be interested in the learning and to keep the past information alive to help them to correct um, factors they didn't understand so that mm-hmm. the student is more aware of the learning. That will give them more strength. It helps them to, uh, to develop their memory so they remember facts more. And I've produced with my wife a teacher training course online to help the teachers in this. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I and you you just made some really good points about what what teachers uh, can do and should do. Um, I find, and it's not just teachers, but more or less adults, that uh, sometimes when we talk about things like critical thinking or problem solving, uh, it is almost like a, a switch that we want to turn on and off. And I argue that once you turn it on, you, it's very difficult to turn off, uh, which is a good thing about critical thinking, but you almost need a special adult to, to deal with uh, a child who is a critical thinker because they challenge a lot of concepts that you want them to just uh, accept uh, out of hand. And so it's not that easy. Uh, I, I have often talked to teachers and said that we say we want critical thinkers. Unfortunately, what it really translates into is that we want them to think critically when we want them to think critically. And others, there are times when we want them just to accept what we say and not engage. Uh, but uh, I hear you saying that, and I think in being in agreement with that, that we 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 should encourage the the critical thinking, but we also need on the teacher side a group of people who are capable of facilitating that. You know, when we talk about critical thinking, what we're really asking the students to do is not to accept the information that they're fed, so that they question right. it. And they learn more by it. But, you know, we have a big problem, of course, with teacher retention. We're losing too many teachers. This is a very, very serious problem. Classrooms are overcrowded. Teachers are leaving for, not because of the kids, because of other pressures involved in the job. And this is encouraging education to move more and more into computer learning so that 
they are we are teaching children to learn how to access information. But the problem is that the kids will go to a program or, or they'll go to Google and find something and they will trust that information and then they will base their whatever their, their, their assignment on the information they gain. They don't question that. They don't search for other aspects. So, and that's, that's the problem. Um, so teaching critical thinking is essential because it, we need children to understand what they're doing rather than just try to remember what they're doing. And uh, you do this by, by language. Um, you know, when I, was, when I began all this in 94, I, I, I wanted to meet um, somebody who could give me some guidance. And there was a man called Matthew Lippmann uh, in America and Feuerstein in Israel. And I wrote to both of them and said, could, could I please come and, and, and meet you and, and get some understanding of where I'm going to go with these ideas? And Feuerstein re- replied, and Matthew uh, didn't at that time. So I went to Israel and I, I spent a month with Feuerstein. And I remember arriving there, uh, very, very hot, and I, I, I got to a school about, my appointment with it was half past eight. And I arrived at half past seven because, you know, this is a world-famous guy and I was very bit nervous. And the secretary at that time was typing away in the typewriter. And I just sat, she said, just sit, he'll, he'll come, just, just sit and wait. And I waited and I'm watching this clock and it didn't come. Half past eight had gone and quarter to nine, five, ten to nine, five to nine. I thought, gosh, you know, I've come halfway around the world to meet this guy. He hasn't turned up. And suddenly this short man was standing right in front of me. And he said, because I came from from Denmark, he said to me, oh, you've come to, to meet the ugly duckling. And I responded, no, I've come to see the happy prince. He then <laughs> immediately just went into a room and closed the door. I thought, oh, my God, what, what do I do? You know? Mm-hmm. And the secretary said, well, go in. And I thought, I can't, no, I, I can't just go into the room. You know, it is very rude. And she said, look, if you don't go in, he won't see you. So I knocked at the door, no reply. And the secretary said to me, go in. So I opened the door, and when I opened the door, there's Feuerstein shouting with another, with a group of Israeli professors. I thought they were going to kill themselves, mm-hmm. each other. And then suddenly they all walked out, and I was left alone. But what I realized from that is that the secret of intelligence is language. It is only by fighting for words, by fighting to understanding, that you understand something. And this is one of the things I, I, I learned from the time I, I was in Israel, is that mm-hmm. the importance is to get the student to interrogate another person with their thoughts. I, I may have an idea of a chair in my mind, and you will have a chair in your mind, but it's only by discussing to each other that we come to a common understanding of what the chair is we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so therefore we need to create a classroom of inquiry, like, like um, Dewey and Lippmann said, so that we enable all the students to interrogate each other and the information to gain an understanding of it. Mm-hmm. And to do that, we have to move away from these ideas of rows of desks. We actually have a political idea and encourage the teacher to, 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 to uh, send out instructions. I, I, I advocate um, a kind of a um, uh, difficult to describe, but just... But just just row, just there's the desk on three sides of the room with an open space where the teacher's free to move within that space, and like as they kind of like an actor where they explain, where they tell a story, where they create enthusiasm within the students to identify with the purpose of the lesson, 
and help to wind through it by questioning and answering so that the students are active within it. And one of the things I find with this is that by by placing the desks in this kind of a kind of a U shape, that every 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 child or every student is in the front row, and I find that this gives them greater confidence to ask questions because there's nobody behind um, which they're aware of who's going to laugh at them because they ask a question. And this is I think this is very important. I really wish I could demonstrate to people how the importance of this configuration of desks and to me it's a secret i i see this desk configuration but then i see a teacher sitting sitting behind their desk and that's not right a teacher has to be up on their feet and like i said they have to be like an actor they have to entertain the minds of the students to keep them alive and it's only by keeping this sense of mo momentum that they can stop the students from drifting to thoughts of destruction and keep them mm -hmm. to level with the rules but i'm sorry we're running out of time so Please ask me more questions. Yes, you know, it's fascinating. Thank you so much uh, for what you've shared um, already. And I, you know, I just can't say enough about how much I appreciate you uh, and your, your perspective on this. And um, I know that uh, there are, you, you have a couple of other books, uh, one on intelligence. I'd love to, for us to take some time. Um, and you have you've mentioned in other places that I've seen and read that we really need to understand the primary uh, definition of intelligence. So I'd love to hear your, your take on that. Well, yeah, yeah, we can't do that in a very short time. Um, right, right. But, but basically, um, so, so, you know, what, what happened to me was that when I was 17, I didn't understand anything. And when I was 24, I understood everything about the subjects that I was learning. Yeah. And 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 I, I thought people would have thought that I was genetically stupid when I was 17, but they would have thought I was genetically cleverer when I was 24 because I was able to produce a much more proficient response as to what was going on. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I, I had this idea, is intelligence really inherited? And everybody said it is. But I thought, why do we think it is? And so I spent decades going back to the political history behind this idea of inherited intelligence. And I spent, went back 200 years to find lies, fraud, deceit by senior psychologists. And it's still going on today, of course, with the bell curve. But, but to convince civilization that intelligence is inherited, why do we think it is? Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned, I studied genetics. And you know, if you talk to a geneticist, they will tell you, it is not possible to measure human intelligence because to find out what the gene is, you've got to know what the environment is. And the environment of every individual is unique. Even with monozygotic twins, it's different. They have mutations before they're born. So if you're going to find out what the gene is, you've got to know what the environment is. And you cannot do that. You cannot take the environment of all humans and apply it to one human because, of course, we're all so different. What I really found out was that the 19th century was a time of very serious political disturbance. Eight, well, we can count a lot more about this, but 1848 was a time of universal revolution. It began, of course, in France, Paris, over the right to vote, but that swept like wildfire right throughout Europe. And mm -hmm. the revolutions went haywire. Uh, the, the, the leading people in the societies actually fled to England at that time, because at that time England had a different political basis, it was more amenable to social change than they were on the, on the continent. And 
And then a couple of months later, they, the authorities, they came back with militia and they slaughtered a lot of people. So from 1848 up until 1914, the whole of civilization at that time was filled with a nest, was spies and informers trying to find out who the socialists were to get rid of them, either frighten them, imprison them, or exile, or ex, ex, um, uh, uh, you know, send them to another country, so that the general mass of people would conform to this idea of respect for authority. And what happened, there was a man called Francis Galton, who wrote a book in 1869 called Hereditary Genius. And Galton said that if you inherit the facial features, so then you must inherit the brain, and or the effect of the brain through the family line, and this is recognized by the social status of the family. So if the judge has a particular nose, and he's a judge, then his son, having the same nose, will have the same capability to be a judge. If the cleaner has a, a different kind of a, a, a jaw, mm-hmm. and his son inherits the same jaw, then his son will be able to do the same menial task as his father. And the whole program about inherited intelligence grew out of that. And so Gallatin and then, of course, Pearson and whatever, they were never actually able to measure human intelligence. You cannot do it. But it created a means by which human beings could be classified according to their social status, their color, their ethnic background, whatever it was that the status quo wanted to um, create a design by which people could then be in control of other people. And, of course, religion. So we find that, for example, in Northern Ireland, which is uh, Protestant-dominated, that Catholic children are prohibited by various strategies from a clear education so that they're not able to get into a, a, a better academic to take over leading roles in, in the society. And, and mm-hmm. it goes on. Every country has got the same thing with uh, whatever. And, and it, it goes from there. And, of course, what, hap- well, what happened, of course, was Goddard well, this is a very, very big subject, of course, but, but Goddard uh, went, to, went to Europe and he found out what Binet was interested. At that time, in 1870, the, the French had lost to the Persians in the Franco-Persian War. And there was a French general, Duart, I can't pronounce it, I'm sorry, but Duart is something like that. He said mm-hmm. that we must make French soldiers more intelligent uh, so that they can beat the Germans if the next war comes up, which of course he did in 1914. And Piaget, sorry, um, Binet uh, was given the idea, was given the task of trying to find out if children were um, mentally inferior because of a genetic problem or because of some environmental social problem. And that's mm-hmm. what he did. All Binet did was to try to find a one-to-one verbal discussion with a child to find out if the problem they had in learning was because of some organic factor or because of a, uh, a social pra- a social problem, which we now know more about. He didn't design an intelligence test. Goddard took the idea. He, he To America, and there's a big story about this, but the big problem with America at that time was that they were, there was an influx of something like 30,000 immigrants a day and, at Ellis Island, and the, the administration couldn't handle this influx of people. So they mm-hmm. told Goddard to, do, to create an intelligence test to um, exclude people they didn't want at that time, was it the Russians, the Jews, or wherever it was. So these people would come in and they would get an intelligence test 
and they would prove not to be capable, so they were sent back. So God reduced 30,000 to 5,000 a day. So 25,000 were sent back. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and that was the beginning of the intelligence test, and for a political uh-huh. purpose. And of course, yes. PMN uh, did his own work on that, and the story goes on. Um, but the basic line is that human intelligence cannot be measured. We don't know what intelligence for a human being. Really? But once you understand... The, the, you know, of course, the, the bell curve, the graph, the standard distribution curve, which, came, of course, came from uh, Gauss. The idea of this is that there is a display of uh, intelligence from zero to 200, with 100 being the average citizen. But if you, what really happens is they take people who are regrettably uh, suffered from some um, birth complication, oxygen starvation, or chromosome mutation like downstream syndrome on the left and they put these in the same graph and they use this these genetic differences to explain the genetic differences of everybody else but you can't do that because they are different genetic profiles and so while on the left you've got somebody who might be a down syndrome on the far right you've got einstein or hawkins or or newton a genius but the thing is that geniuses never came from a genius line and they never produced a genius line. They, I don't remember right now, but Newton's father, whatever he was, Einstein's father, they were not geniuses, but the individual became, in a sense, a genius because they were enlightened by some factor and they could recognize how to solve puzzles and whatever it was. But this is a, but if you, if you, if you look at the um, Parisian district, distribution curve it completely destroys this idea of the um, uh, the bell curve but this is a very long talk we can make it another time oh yes absolutely we we'll probably have to invite you back to talk about that i do want to give you an opportunity because i'm sure there are people who just as i did i i know that you are on linkedin but i wanted to give you an opportunity to share any websites other books that people can, where they can find you um, in, on social media or otherwise, where they can purchase your books. Uh, and, and so I wanted to give you an opportunity uh, to do that before we close out. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. Um, I wrote a book called The Illusion of Education. And in this book, I, I put a lot of time into the the possible reality of nanotechnology taking over and creating great serious social problems. And I, I wanted to move away from that because it's unpredictable. So I, I altered that to create the illusion of school, which in one half it talks about, as we've talked about here, the problems of children learning, the reason why school doesn't want all children to learn better, because school is employed to create a variation of ability and it employs tactics to prevent students from learning better. We can talk all about that. And the second half of the book is very practical tips and guidance that I and my wife have uh, found to be very useful in helping all children to learn much better. Mm-hmm. And so that's the illusion of school. It is going to be published in the next couple of days. It's not available yet, but by the end of the week it will be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I wrote a book called The Hidden Secrets of Intelligence, which I altered a bit to create um, what I call Intelligence, the Great Lie. And that's in the computer, and that'll be published in a week or two weeks' time. Mm. And that is really, that really proves that we cannot measure human intelligence, and that all ideas that a certain class of people are 
more genetically better than another is false. And I, and I prove I prove why that is so. So there is no nature or debate, and there's no IQ. We just don't know what it is in a human being. <laughs> but then, of course, how how do how do we learn? So I wrote a book called The Brain Environment Complex, which traces or understands how the neurons develop within the brain from the fetus, the infant, sorry, the, the embryo. And then after birth, through the various stages of development that enable the human being to relate to the world about them, how we learn to be intelligent. Because basically, it comes down to love, in a sense. So I wrote a book called Mediation, Crafting the Intelligence of a Child, which enables teachers to find how to be more empathetic with, with students and parents how to be better with children. And of course, we know the work of um, Rosalind Hart in 1995, who found that Children who are raised by academic-minded parents know something like 30 million words more than children raised by um, parents who are not so aware of the world um, by the age of three, and language builds upon that. And then I wrote a book called Preparing a New World Education, which really tries to, and well, it presents the idea of a new curriculum and, and a really way that we can try to create critical thinking within students. The problem we've got with this idea of critical thinking is that a teacher will try to employ it within a lesson and say, well, okay, if Napoleon does this, but what happens if he does that? Mm-hmm. And the big problem here is that the minds of all the students are not engaged in this. There will be some who've got more confidence and they will say, well, this can happen, and the rest kind of nod and follow along. They're not developing their own thoughts. But these types of questions, they don't create any neural design within the brain to be more critical about information. We do need, as, as Binet uh, said in uh, 1911, I think it was, or, or 1905, I can't remember right now, um, that we need to create, uh, we need, school needs to teach children how to learn to reason and how to learn to think before they begin the subjects of geography and history and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, um, I uh, I had to teach myself really everything, and I, I realized that learning English, being competent in English is not actually so easy, even for English mm-hmm. people. So I wrote a book called Learn How to Construct a Sentence Simply, which is, it, it's actually, that actually is free in um, as, as an e-book in, in, on, on Amazon. It, it's a free book. But then I wrote mm-hmm. Five Ways for Better Grades, How We Can Learn to Be Better. And then I wrote a book called Teacher, Parent, Child. This is a lovely book. It, it, it is an anecdote. It's stories that if I've helped children who had trouble to learn and found that they could learn brilliantly. Parents who are worried about a problem and teachers who have struggled with stress and whatever it happened to be. And it's a, it's a book of short stories that many find very meaningful. And I'm but I really wanted to, you know, so many people now are using mobile phones and playing games. That we're losing the idea of a, a sense of a story. So I wrote a, a romantic book called The Woman. And it's a lovely story about a woman who lives in Cornwall in England in the, in the 18th century. And it's an intrigue and she gets kind of kidnapped and she ends up in the colonies. And um, she's involved with the Daughters of Liberty and she actually saves the American Revolution. And it's it is a lovely nail-biting, gripping story, and um, well, that, that's what it is. My wife, my and my wife, we have an email. If anybody would like to call it, contact us. It is info at andersonacademy.co.uk, and of course at Anderson with an e. 
So that's I-N-F-O at A-N-D-E-R-S-E-N-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y dot C-O dot U-K. And we can be contacted there if anybody's interested in this online teacher training course that we've created uh, to help teachers uh, help their students mm-hmm. to be better. Well, thank you so much, Roy. I, I really appreciate, uh, as I said, uh, when you first came on board, uh, that uh, oh, yes, go ahead. There's one thing. Can I can yes. I just uh, mention? Because this is so really important. Uh, I, I have not met a teacher who knows this and knows about this, but it is so so deeply important. Every educator really ought to know about it. <clears throat> Of course, the brain, we have a protection system. Whenever we feel frightened, it, uh, our body changes from a parasympathetic to a, to a sympathetic nervous system. But what happens is that if a student feels intimidated, if a student shouted out, if a teacher shouts at a student saying, you're stupid or whatever, or if a student is, feels that other people will feel they're insecure in a very competitive environment, any, any sense of insecurity to the to the identity will generate a change in the chemistry of the brain and what happens is that the we have a hormone called cortisol and if the individual feels any sense of ridicule embarrassment however small it may be their brain can release or overproduce this cortisol this this cortisol then floods parts of the brain that deal with rational thinking mm-hmm. dealing analytic thinking so it stops that working so the brain becomes blocked so that the brain can deal with whatever the threat is so the mind can deal with this danger and be and be safe mm-hmm. and it's it, it is such an important thing to everybody to know which is why it's a good idea it's very important to keep everybody happy in the class um, mm-hmm. of course there are many tales but i you know i, I remember well actually it happened to me I was teaching uh, uh, teachers um, how to understand the mind map. And I drew this nucleus with a lot of branches going off it. And in the, the illustration was about mathematics. And I said to the class of teachers, can you please give me a label for these branches? And one teacher sh- shouted trigonometry, and I wrote trigonometry. Another shouted uh, algebra, and I wrote algebra. And the math teacher shouted geometry. And for one mm fraction of a fraction of a second my mind said it's geometry but a math teacher said it's geometry and then suddenly I thought gosh I've got 50 people looking at me if I write the wrong letter on the board they'll all laugh at me and my brain froze I couldn't spell that word mm-hmm. and and I had to turn around and explain exactly that my mind was blocked because of the fear of ridicule and this was the danger of cortisol and it happens every lesson to, to many people that come to you and I right now. It is something that just freezes our brains so we can't think. And there was a, I was in one class with it, watching a teacher, and he was not very good, and he was saying to the teacher, children, okay, this is, do you understand? Everyone said, yes, sir. And he would talk here, and he said, do you understand? Everyone said, yes, sir. And of course, they didn't understand anything. And there was one boy who was looking out the window, completely booked, and the teacher shouted at him and said, you boy, stand up. What did I just say? When I saw that child, about 12 years old, maybe 14, stand up, he was, his mind was frozen. He, he couldn't think anything because cortisol had taken over. He was so embarrassed, his mind was frozen. And he, he didn't know what to say. 
and the teacher got more angry with them. I told the boy to sit down. But what was interesting, for the rest of that lesson, that boy was totally give the appearance that he was glued to everything that was happening on that chalkboard to give the impression that he was understanding what was happening. I knew that he didn't understand anything at all. And for the rest of that day, he probably wouldn't be able to think about anything because the cortisol level was so high. And it, it can be triggered so easily by one student feeling that another student laughs at them uh, in the slightest way. And, and we've really got to understand the danger of this, of cortisol, and know how to... So cortisol rises when there's a threat, and when we feel happy, the cortisol goes down. And it is really important that teachers understand this. Never shout at a student. If they've done something wrong, take them somewhere quiet and explain to them mm-hmm. why it should behave in a different way. Yes. That, that's so important. Yes, um, absolutely. I'd love yes. to talk. I'd love to talk more. I'd love to talk more. Yes. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, you have you have really added to me today uh, so much information and and as I like to call them nuggets of wisdom. Um, you have uh, you have contributed a lot. Uh, in education, and we appreciate that. And I'm sure that there'll be people that are going to reach out um, because, and I'm looking forward to the release of of the books um, that you've mentioned. Uh, the what you said about the intelligence book uh, really fascinates me. So uh, I look forward to that as well. Um, and so um, I'm wishing you great success, continued success. Uh, with the work that you're doing, and and as always, we'll be listening and reading uh, about your work uh, into the future. And uh, if you're ever in New York City, please um, reach out, and we'll have you come through uh, over at Columbia and and uh, talk to our students. I'm sure uh, they would benefit greatly from your wisdom. Uh, but until then, just uh, ask you to go well and stay well. Oh, I would love to be invited. I would love to be invited. Thank you so much, Brian. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Good night.